This episode of Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist is recorded at Rainbow Bridge Sanctuary on the Big Island of Hawaii. Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist is sponsored by one of my companies, Student Loan Tutor. If you or anyone you know would like to stress less or pay significantly less on your student loans, one of our tutors can likely help. You can find us at studentloantutor.com or on Facebook by the same name. Today, my guest is a recovering psychologist, storyteller, and trickster, Bio Akumalafe. I met Bio in Salt Lake City in 2019 and attended one of his evening presentations, uh, if you want to call it that, and his weekend workshop. Bio's work left me feeling more like I had experienced a psychedelic or woken up from a dream that I was not able to put in the normal categories of knowledge as I've become, as I've become to understand it. Uh, I was left troubled and disturbed, yet surrounding this irritation, I believe a pearl is continuing to form in the recesses. I believe that it is the intention of this episode to introduce more questions using language and story in a way that bio is particularly adept at. With that said, let the dance begin. Oh, uh, and if you enjoyed these podcasts, please rate and review it in iTunes. It takes a minute or two and helps the show a great deal. Thank you and enjoy. So, uh, well, Bio, it's great to see your face again. And uh, it's been, I think, a little over a year. Yeah. Yeah. And I know it's like so, such a different time zone. You're 15 and a half hours. I love India. India is just uh, so trickstery, uh, whereas the ads that have, <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're not adjusting that. It's just 13 and a half. Yeah. yeah. Many people are always shocked that where's the half coming from? And I'm like, I'm always shocked that they're shocked. I just thought it was just right, just appropriate to add, <laughs> to let it be an hour. That, it's just crazy, yeah. yeah. Maybe they'll change it to something really auspicious, like 15 hours and 33 minutes ahead, just to keep, it, keep everybody on their toes. <laughs> that would be great. That would be more like <laughs> India that I know. Totally. Well, today, welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. Today I have Bio Akumalafe. Uh, and I, I struggle, I, I helped promote an event, uh, that you did in Salt Lake city with the Jung society of Utah. And I remember struggling to try to encapsulate what your talk or what your message is about into the Facebook parameters of whatever 245 characters that they allow. And I said, bio, can you please help me, uh, uh, phrase what you do? And then that's before I read your book, at which point I, I read your book that you wrote as a letter, as letters to your daughter in the future. And, and then after I read that, someone asked me, well, what did you think about bio's book? And I could tell that they wanted some like, like quick answer, and I said, I, I, and I did, I gave them, I, I gave them the quick answer of, I don't really know uh, what, what I thought of, the, of, of Bio's book. Um, I, I could think about that and try to, uh, try to explain it. And I'm not trying to, I, I could imagine somebody listening here going like, well, I mean, what do you mean you don't know what, what, what the book, <laughs> what you thought of the book? Um, I, I, I felt confused. Uh, I, I, I liked it. I felt inspired at points. Uh, it felt uh, kind of, uh, mystical at, at points. And then, you know, and then it went on this kind of like, sh at some point it was like this choose your own adventure story. And you went down this, like, uh, I don't know if you really met with this man in Africa or not. And you were looking for these things called hushes that I couldn't find anywhere on Google. Google didn't know what a hush was. Uh, I'm assuming it was some type of bug is, uh, and then I, I didn't know if you were actually running, finding bugs or finding things that were like bugs. And then I, and then I, and I knew you were, uh, 
I know you're a psych, have a doctorate in psychology, so I thought maybe like James Hillman type of bugs, uh, meaning the things that we don't want to look at, and you know, and so this is all happening, and and by the time of the end of the book, I'm I'm carrying uh, a lot of this uh, along the way, and I think maybe that was, you know, somewhat intentional or maybe accidentally intentional, but uh, I enjoyed I enjoyed your book and and uh, your workshop, which I was equally uh, perplexed by. Uh, but I wanted to maybe allow you to speak to what it is that you're, uh, what you're working on now and uh, how you're engaging with uh, the world. Well, well, that's shocking because I actually came on this talk hoping you could tell me what I, <laughs> what, what I, <laughs> and now you don't have answers for me. I'm so disappointed, Zach. You know, I thought you were the guy to meet. Uh, well, uh, let me say a, f a few things about, and saying hello to everyone listening, um, well, a few things about the uh, uh, hushes and stuff like that. See, I grew up in a culture where those uh, academic um, noble distinctions between um, fiction and nonfiction aren't obvious. Like, like the world isn't determined or it's not determinately divided between that which is true and that which is poetic. Sometimes I speak and I write, or every time I speak and write, people tell me, oh, that's so poetic. You sound poetic. I make no efforts to sound poetic. I, I, I literally just, uh, it was listening to others that I learned that I speak poetically or write poetically. I'm basically speaking how an elder or a person in the market in Lagos, in Nigeria, would speak. Um, there is no distinction between fiction and nonfiction. Um, I wanted a book to do one of um, several things. And one of them was to, um, to disturb the idea that there is such a thing as reality that is discrete and stable and outside of the fictional, um, like fact and fiction. Um, uh, I wanted them, I wanted those worlds to meet. I wanted uh, to disturb the modern Western mind that um, has materialized in form of hundreds of letters written to me. Uh, Bio, tell me what a hush is. I've searched encyclopedia, I've searched Google like you. I didn't even know you did that. Uh, what's a hush? How does it look like? Uh, could you please tell me what a hush is? A hush this or this? And my response, response to most of these letters is basically, Yes. <laughs> like, is a hush an insect or fiction? I just write yes. Um, and, and yeah, the idea is to leave you disturbed enough, to leave you in an itch enough for you to hopefully see the world differently. And maybe that speaks to what I feel called to do in the world or with the world today. Apart from being with my family and learning to be at home, which feels more paramount than any other thing at the moment. Um, I feel really called to disturb, to disturb things, to, um, to actualize that nerdish vision I had as a social recluse walking down in my undergraduate days from the library to my room and noticing all my, do I call them friends? Okay, I could call them colleagues. Are, do, are they, are they, are, do you have them on Facebook, I guess, is the question. Do I have these guys on Facebook? I don't think there was Facebook then. But do you have them now? Because I think Facebook, did, like... 
<laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what I have them. I don't even know if they're in my Facebook. Uh, I've clocked out the 5,000 limit. But, but I would walk down to my room and I would see all these guys hanging out with, with girls. And, and, I would, and I would just realize how lonely I was. You know, I was just, I'm so lonely. I'm so nerdish. See all the other guys. They have girlfriends. They're going to parties. I'm just with a book. And then I would look towards the, I would look into the sky and I would imagine other worlds. It gave me room to, to imagine alien universes, to imagine, to, to, to realize that the world that I'm in, that I tend to think of as ordinary and normal, is actually this big ball of geology spinning around this unknowable cosmos. Um, and, and then it made the familiar strange and the strange familiar. Um, I want everyone to feel that way, just like Batman wants people to feel the fear, his fear of bats. I want people to mm. feel, I want people to feel that same sense of awe that, that has always been part of my, my, my um, hereditary or my gift, my ancestral calling, I guess. Last night when I was going to bed, I, I, it was really dark, um, seemed darker than usual. And uh, I, had fin- I had not finished reading your essay. I'd given myself over an hour. I should have scrolled to the bottom. Yeah, I should have scrolled to the bottom. I, I spent another like 20 minutes with it this morning. And I'm like, gosh, I'm going to get to the end before the, the, the bio talk. And, uh, and I didn't get to the end of it. So uh, we're right in the, the middle, I guess, uh, as I wanted to finish, quote unquote, finish it and, and be at the end of it and, and uh, come on here and speak intelligently about the essay in some way, or at least attempt to. And uh, I find myself, I don't even know if I'm quite in the middle. It's a long essay. I mean, it could have been a book really. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be, it's already been made as a book by, <laughs> by people I work with. Yeah. That's great. I should have scrolled to the bottom. I, I saw essay. I mean, you tricked me with the word essay. You should have said there's a, a, a book right here that you're about to read. Uh, and so, uh, I was going to bed last night and, and it was really dark and I'm kind of fumbling my way through the room and there's no, uh, as people would call it, light pollution. I've heard it called that. There's no light pollution out here. Another word for that might be there's no, uh, there's no light coming from uh, humans. I, I live on a, right now uh, on an 86 acre uh, farm uh, on, the, on the coast of the Hamakua coast of Hawaii and then it's big trees on both sides and there's really no, no neighbors nearby. So the only thing illuminating the sky were stars. And, uh, and so I'm trying to get my way to bed and I'm looking up at the stars and I'm thinking about what it would be like thousands of years ago before there were concrete stories of these are just quote unquote, just, you know, suns in the sky, uh, that, you know, uh, don't have any intelligence, you know, just these stars, you know, and just this sense of hubris of, of modernity that says, oh, you know, intel- we're, the, we're the only harbingers of intelligence as human beings. You know, maybe some, maybe dolphins, you know, you know, they're non-human persons too, but that these stars are not intelligent. Uh, and, I, and I find that to be hubris, for lack of a better word, and uh, that all life on earth is coming from the sun. I mean, not only from the sun, the sun is just one player in 
all of the life that is on earth. I mean, we have this gigantic sun that is feeding everything and, uh, and we take it for granted, so to speak. We don't think about that. We are thinking about the girls at the library or whatever. And, uh, and here we are on, on this podcast right now and, uh, something much smaller than the sun, infinitely smaller, almost, uh, has stopped the entire earth. And I don't know. And, and I think we go back to the familiar things of, you know, we want to feel comfortable again and create an enemy, you know, oh, it's 5g. Uh, no, it's uh, Donald Trump somehow, every, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump did it or, or no, the Democrats did it, uh, to keep Donald Trump from office. I, I hear that a lot. And I go, well, you do realize that there's other countries in the world. Uh, the United States is, is, uh, I think they forget that, that, that there's other countries in the world and that it's not just about Trump and, and, uh, and I guess Biden is the person. So maybe you want to touch a little bit on that coronavirus essay and what people are saying, uh, since I'm not able to speak about it completely. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for pointing out uh, the uh, tendency to centralize the American experience um, and the claims to American exceptionalism. Um, I always wondered growing up when watching Hollywood movies, why the aliens always landed in America when they crash landed. Why didn't they just land in uh, South Africa <laughs> or somewhere else? It always seems to be somewhere around the United States. Um, well, so thank you for pointing that out. What do I say about the coronavirus? Um, well, the, um, I'm not, I make no claims, absolutely no claims whatsoever to being a biologist or an epidemiologist or understanding the, the way... Um, People who are doing a lot of work, good work, I would say, are, you know, and, you know, have been doing to understand what this virus is. Uh, the world I come from, nurtured by philosophies um, that speak of the world as relational, um, however, do not permit me to, um, to speak of a thing as a single thing. Um, that a virus is not simply a virus. That's a reductionistic um, view of the world. The world is not, um, the world is, is ecstatically and orgasmically relational. So that if I were to invite you to think of something right now, you're actually thinking of that thing plus another thing, even though our habits of perception and, and imagination um, invite us to think of things as discrete entities, separate and separable from other entities in the world. So Corona may be w one character that's maybe taken center stage right now, but has been on the scene for some time, but has now taken center stage and is now directing the entire play, even the audience. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean to think of a, the virus as an assemblage of heterogeneous entities, um, disturbs the notion that it's new or disturbs the notion that anything is new that is not at the same time simultaneously ancient um that this virus uh might have might be a mutant novel mutation but in a sense it's processually and um linked to um a stream of viruses and becomings not just 
viruses, but human becomings, economic factors, political events, um, so that in a sense, it is us. The virus is us. Um, it is our activity, not just American activity. Thank you for pointing that out again. But it is, it is outsourcing extraction to China. It is, it is the way we think about well-being. It's the way we think about wealth. It's the way we have structured the economy. It's the end or the vision mass extinction meeting itself in different ways. It is the world touching itself. And it is the world in some way saying, I don't know. Um, so um, I like to think of the virus as an assemblage. And in the work that I just did, and the essay you refer to, I took some pains to, 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 and I think you can only know assemblages retroactively. I took some pains to look at what are the things, what are the things that are mattering when we speak of the virus? Not just the conspiracies about it, not just the biology of it, um, but the ways that we have invited it to happen climate change, carbon emissions, even our notions of climate justice, everything seems wrapped up in this one coronavirus event. Yeah, I'm Madeline and myself are pretty isolated up here. And uh, so for us, not a whole lot has changed in our direct experience with our environment, with the land around us. Uh, but when we go into town and... Um, we see a definite shift. We're here on, in Hawaii. And uh, what I found surprising, really, was uh, how everybody, a lot of people really followed all of the orders. Um, I, I found that surprising here in Hawaii. It's kind of like some people call this the second to last frontier on the, in the United States, Alaska being the last frontier, kind of real wild. And uh, I found... You know, it, it seemed, I, I wasn't exactly sure how many people on the big island at any given time were tourists, because uh, there was always, you know, hustling and bustling going around, more on the Kona side than where we are. But uh, right when this happened, we went out one day thinking we could find a beach to go to, and all the beaches were closed, and all of outdoor, basically the outdoors were closed. Almost everything that was labeled un, not essential was closed, and there was almost nobody out except for homeless people. Somehow homeless people were just doing what they do in like the full spotlight. Like it was very obvious to notice homeless people. Like you couldn't, if you were able to ignore them before, it was impossible to ignore them now. And uh, there was this morning where uh, a group of us had gathered, which we probably shouldn't have. Hopefully nobody listens to this and comes and finds a way to arrest me or something. Uh, but, uh, we were gathered to record an ecstatic dance. Madeline was playing ecstatic dance on zoom and, uh, people in Salt Lake city and probably elsewhere were tuning in to dance together with intention. And I remember that we were dancing. It was really early in the morning cause we were doing it for Utah time and it was eight in the morning and we're playing music and about eight 30, uh, we, we look outside and it was very apocalyptic. So we're up in this apartment overlooking like the streets of downtown Hilo and uh, we're dancing, and it felt a lot like that movie I Am Legend with Will Smith. I don't know if you've ever seen it. He's usually in alien movies, yeah. And so here we are, we're dancing up at the top, and I look out the window, and there's nobody. And it's Sunday, and there's just the streets are empty, and all of a sudden, you know, comes a couple homeless people like pushing a cart or kind of walking. Like it, it looked, it felt like uh, not just looked, it felt like a zombie apocalypse. 
Uh, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way against homeless people. I mean, these are people that are deeply traumatized, you know, often, uh, you know, due to war or due to child, you know, child abuse and then kind of forgotten their stories are forgotten. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, except to say that it was a stark contrast between the dance and this moment of kind of ecstasy, you know, uh, diving into the ecstatic with a group of people and knowing all of that's going on. And then at the same time, looking out and seeing these, this, this, the abandoned streets with inhabited only by people that felt like what we depict zombies as. And, uh, I don't know Have you experienced much of that in India where you're at at the moment because I know there's a huge homeless population. I mean, it's not even called homeless. There's just an entire culture of people that just don't have homes. Right, right. Um, and so it was really difficult to enact social distancing um, laws or protocols here in India as a result because there are lots of people who don't have walls and who don't know, um, well, who don't have places that have um, tap water, uh, running water, clean water. Um, and in many places termed in, in the so-called global south, um, that's the case. Um, so yes, I, I, did, I, didn't have sim- I did have similar events of just peeping out the window and, and just noticing the, the sudden stillness of, of things, especially when you live in a country like India which is incredibly in your face. It's the notion of privacy here is, is, uh, is difficult to come by. Um, there's, there's a festival in the morning and you, I ask my wife who is Indian, like, what's that one again? And she tells me this person <laughs> has died or that person has died and they're celebrating this God or this goddess or, or something. There's always music and drumming and loud singing just going by the street. And for weeks on end, I haven't heard a damn thing. I haven't heard anything close to that. So there, there is a sense of the apocalypse, but I, I guess this speaks to, again, I marvel at the power of this, this visitation, of this, um, this incredibly infinitesimal thing that, is, um, that has the power to just... Um, warp our perceptions and bring us close to each other in ways that we never thought were possible. I, by bringing us close to each other, I mean uh, showing us to ourselves. Um, maybe I could deploy this metaphor of uh, a super saturated solution. Um, if you want to make a crystal, you could go two ways, I, I think. Either you let it form over millions of years naturally, or you take a super saturated solution into a lab and then you throw in a catalyst, a small splinter, or a small bit of some crystal, and it immediately freezes the solution, um, and that crystallizes. Um, it's, it, it's almost like this virus, this thing that we rudely call a virus, um, that our habitual perceptual modes, our habits of seeing, names as a, an enemy, comes in, it's dropped in our soupy relationships, and everything intensifies. Now we can see 
the way politics is framed. Now we can understand how justice doesn't work for us. Now we, we are coming to terms with those people that have been invisible, you know, like homeless people. And, and it's like an insurgency of the invisible. The things that have been hidden are coming out of the cracks. Literally, the word apocalypse means an uncovering. It literally means a showing forth and uncovering. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, a terminal point, but it, it does mean that something that has been covered for so long is exposed. So it's like an exposure, an intensification of the invisible. And, and this feels like that transversal event that has shocked us into noticing ourselves as if for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it's I, you and I are both friends with Charles Eisenstein, and I, I, I see... You know, he speaks about the story of separation, and it is so clear to see that story is is palpable now. The story of separation. I mean, it's six feet separation. It's separation of belief systems of groups. It's you know people posting on Facebook. I, I see that I don't. I deleted the phone, the app on my phone with with a with great distress. Uh, because I need it at the same time, at least I feel I do, in order to earn a livelihood. So it's this, you know, uh, very, uh, it's an awkward relationship that I have with Facebook. Dysfunction, dysfunctional, maybe, I guess is a better word. And I, and I see people posting now at this point, because, you know, and it's changing, you're watching it shift. You know, they post, you know, I've done my research, therefore I know what this is, you know, and, and really what they've done is they've gone out and tried to find a bunch of, they've tried to find to prove what they already knew or they post and they say, I'm not engaged. I'm not, you know, uh, these are just some of the things I'm seeing. I'm not going to argue this, but this is what it is. And I'm not responding to comments. Almost like they're making a demand that the world be the way that it is. Uh, you know, and I saw a lot of this growing up. I grew up in the projects and, you know, in the, in the quote unquote, I guess you'd call it the hood, you know, outside of Oakland. Uh, and, uh, a lot of times we would imagine things to be how they weren't, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of money and we just pretend that we did, even though we didn't, you know, and, uh, and I see a lot of make believe, uh, going on, not make believe in a, in a, in a, in a very creative type of way, moving towards transformation, but as make believe as a way to kind of stay where we're at. And I'm wondering how long, uh, that's going to hold. Um, I know a lot of places are opening up again. I know Salt Lake city. Uh, I think that they're, they're getting bombarded by the, you know, economic pressure and pressure from, uh, what would be labeled as more conservative business people panicking as they've spent their entire lives to build something that is essentially falling away by something invisible, uh, that has become manifest and, uh, and they're trying to hold on to what, you know, the abstractions that they built. Uh, and some of them might be relationships that they built, but a lot of it's money. You know, it's this, you know, the whole idea of what money is, is coming into question. The idea of, of, uh, what social dividend, like what are, what's a human right, you know, like, uh, like, should we have the right to food and shelter, uh, as just being human, or do we have to go and earn quote unquote, earn that livelihood again with this conversation, it's hard for me to really jump to a question. So I, I, I might just 
kind of drop what this is here and see where you want to take that from there. Yeah, I, I mean, here, here's, here's um, one of the things, or some of the things that are really of interest to me these days is, you know, I, someone just sent me a beautiful quote. I'm just going to read it out. Um, and it seems obvious at this point. Um, uh, it is difficult to see the picture when you're inside of the frame. And I, I think the author is unknown, um, but I like that. It, it's it's um, it, at some level, especially if you're trained in the academic world, as, as I am, it, it's a beautiful thing to see the carpet, you know, just withdrawn under my feet, just the endorsements that have come with a certain notion of power and a certain notion of knowledge as power. Um, I actually enjoy it seeing that go up in flames um, because it's like um, I was trained to see the human as a liberal free subject, you know, navigating a world that is entirely or almost entirely dormant. And our lot, our purpose is to put the world in the family way to give it purpose, to stamp it with meaning. Um, so it's about human development, it's about self-development, it's about transcendence, um, the self as separate from the world that is the self's condition. Um, and right now, um, just this event is, is showing how we are not actually free, you know, not in our imaginations, not in our agency, not in our will, not in cognit cognition, um, we are we are conditioned. We're contingent. We are interrelational beings, and the framework largely. Um, I don't want to use the word determine because it might uh, conjure tropes of determinism. Um, the idea that things are just set in stone from some ancient beginning. That's not what I want to um, share. Uh, what I want to share is that we are we are part of a framework of being, and it is difficult to even think about that framework until something disrupts that framework, until something breaks through, like a meteorite. Uh, you know about the Podka Menania Tunguska event in 1918 or 1908, I can't remember, I think it's 1908, not 1918, uh, or 1903, sorry, uh, June 30th, 1903. This huge blast that um, in somewhere in Siberia and people think it's a meteor. We don't exactly know what it is, but it leveled 80 million trees and, and it left a giant crater uh, there. And I think it's still visible in, in Siberia, mm. in a forest. And we don't still know what it is. There, there, I've read some papers about this is exactly what it is. No, maybe this is what it is. But I like the idea that this virus is like this, you know, <laughs> like this meet, meteor that blasts and liquefies the surface and makes everything fluid. And then we notice, huh, um, what is human rights? Like, uh, what are human rights? Like you're just asking, shouldn't we have the right mm -hmm. to food? Shouldn't we? Um, it's like we're noticing each other um, and noticing our systems as if for the first time. And my fear is um, like most systems, especially systems that have become very resilient, is that we will take this event, not by a force of will, but by the complexity of our relationships, we will take this event and put it in the family way and use it to reinforce the normal and then get back to the oppression of the familiar, um, which is the reason why I speak about fugitivity 
and call for ways out. When you say you speak about fugitivity and calls for way, ways out, what do you mean? I'm, I'm missing. Um, I, I'm thinking about without, at the risk of sounding entrepreneurial, um, I'm thinking about when you suddenly discover or when you suddenly find you're enabled by changing geological, uh, cosmological, maybe even gastronomical events, viral events, to find that you're in a particular situation. That attention, that awareness is a gift. It didn't come from an exertion of your will. It's a gift because you're related with the world outside, just like we're related with this virus. Um, when that happens, it is possible to deploy that moment to not to shape a new world. Uh, you know, I am usually hesitant when people talk about uh, acknowledge that this is a game-changing event, but now let's create the world that we want. As if mm -hmm. we could do that. It just it looks the same, but with uh, instead with uh, plastic gloves on and a and a face mask and Zoom. Zoom is now replacing the office. You let's 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 create a new world. This will be the parameters. We didn't create capitalism. We didn't create socialism. Um, that is the effort and the agency of not just humans, but more than human moments. Um, at the same time, I I feel that we are afforded an opportunity to stay with the trouble of this event, to sit with it. Um, we don't know what comes next. We, don't, we can't know what comes next in a complex and complexifying world. Um, but staying with the trouble might do things to us, might work on our emotions and our motivations, on our imaginations of the next. I like to say all the time that, and I don't know if I said it during our workshop in Utah last year, that thinking outside the box is exactly how boxes think. The box has imaginations mm. of... Uh, this is exactly what wants to happen next. But it's repeating the frames. Um, it has no idea that it's doing this. It's probably, most probably, repeating the frameworks and rethreading the next with its imaginations of how the next should be. Um, and speaking as a subject of the global south, as a colonial recipient of the benevolence of the West, I have been on the <laughs> other, <laughs> I've been on the other side <laughs> Are the, on the other side of the kindness of good, well-intentioned folk, people who come into my, um, my I dare, I cannot call it a community, that would be um, untrue. I don't know that I've ever lived in what we might think of as a community. I lived in a neighborhood <laughs> um, mm. in, somewhere in Lagos. Uh, I, heard, I heard tales and stories of communities and, uh, and, and elders sit telling stories uh, around fires to children in villages. But that was the mythic past um, that was truncated by the goodwill and the good interruption of the Bible and schooling. Um, and, and so I grew up in that world, and um, I was always the recipient of goodness from the West. And, and I know how it is for people to plan and think, we have it all on paper. This is the blueprint. All we have to do now is to implement it. But human agency doesn't work that way. We are not, the, the, the line from human intentions to actuality is oblique. It's diffracted. It doesn't just stream out the way we want it to be. Because we are part of assemblages, 
we're part of non-human communities. We never work unilaterally. There is no linear transmission of intentions. And I've known that the hard way, you know, um, seeing people come in with laptops promising to help children in our communities and those laptops becoming the next rubbish dump that poisons our waters and dams our local government officials to help. Um, so I think that speaking about fugitivity, I think there is a space, uh, a site for sitting with trouble, for sitting with our modest placement in a world that exceeds us, a world that is not um, attuned or um, given to our imperatives of what the next ought to look like, of what a more beautiful world ought to look like, a world that has its own imperatives. And as a result, maybe by sitting there, some, ex ex some exquisite things might happen and then we might see differently. You're asking for some faith to have, to, to be able to sit with that. But I guess we're, we're having, um, we have the gift of, of leisure, take it or leave it really right now, where we could either mask that leisure with distraction or numbing. Um, I hear alcohol. I've, you know, I hear, I saw Ben Sessa. I don't know if you know, he's a, I had him on the show recently, a psychiatrist out of, out of, uh, out of the UK works with trauma. And he says, you know, right now people are falling into deep states of depression and, uh, and, you know, into violent home situations, uh, being trapped in a house with essentially trapped in a house with unprocessed trauma with everybody externalizing. Well, maybe not everybody. Some people internalize shame. Uh, so you might have one person bearing the weight of the shame in the family, but again, uh, maybe this is a time we could begin to sit with that and learn from that. But I, I fear that a lot of people are not able to either that they lack the grace, so to speak, to be able to understand what the hell is happening with them and uh, are going to the more familiar things of what they might do on a weekend. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to drink to not think. Um, I know that that's what I did as a kid you know, anytime I could, I mean, eventually even high school freshman year, I think even late junior high, I would drink before I went to school. Cause it was really the only way I could, I didn't know at the time, but it was the one way that I could kind of really cope with, you know, and it was kind of normal really. So I think a lot of that, I, I guess what came up for me is I, I felt I'll kind of give you what the process was for me hearing you say that was I'm like, wow, you know, what a great time we're in right now. What a gift that the coronavirus, when it, you know, aside, aside from it's not just a gift. See, I'm so nervous to say what a gift the coronavirus. What do you mean? People are dying. Well, it's like, well, the climate's improving and the, and the coral reefs and, you know, what a gift, you know, but, what you know, it's like, you know, and I hear, you know, we're all in this together, you know, you know, we're all in the same, you know, water together. Well, it's like, well, yeah, but we're in different boats, but you know, and, and then a lot of people imply that different boats means economic, you know, economic means, but you know, somebody that's really wealthy, that's in this real power position all the time and their company is falling apart and, you know, yeah, they might be in a mansion, but they might feel absolutely their whole identity is under siege, you know, so they might look as though they're in a great boat, but you know, maybe not. And maybe somebody that's way less, maybe a farmer in India somewhere that, you know, is actually doing way better because now they're able to spend time with their community, eat their own food and the landlord's not coming after them for, you know, for rent. So it is bringing a lot of that to the surface. And, uh, yeah, you know, I feel like we have 
something that I've craved ever since I can remember is to have some time to, you know, people would ask me, you know, what, what is it that you want to do? You know, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I'm like, shit, I don't know. I want to make enough money so I could figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And it turned into just make money. And then I got so stuck in making money just to survive. And I was either blessed or cursed with the feast or famine. I either had no money at all, or I was making more money than I could spend. And I could never seem to find an equilibrium where I could make enough money to have some time to think. And I was blessed with a insane back injury that crippled me. I had to almost learn how to walk over again, walked with a walker. I couldn't move. I was in complete spasms. And I say a gift and it definitely didn't feel like a gift throughout the whole period of that. And I even say it now with a little bit of hesitancy, but the gift in it is that it forced me to stop. It absolutely forced me. Anything else couldn't force me to stop. And it forced me. Uh, it, I couldn't, will my way through it. I couldn't look confident while bent and hunched over in, and, uh, in grimacing. Uh, I couldn't command, you know, authority in business. Uh, I couldn't think clearly and it really brought me into myself. And I think maybe something, hmm, if there was a, a meme that I could create with bioaccumulafe. And I see people do this with you actually. Maybe it's, maybe you've started this process, but if you had a, uh, one phrase, uh, that has been associated with you, uh, it's time, the times are urgent, slow down, which sounds paradoxical. And, uh, and I think that some intelligence knew that and it forced me out of urgency to stop. Uh, because for me, I had gotten out of the hood, so to speak, by frenetic frenetically moving towards what I believed to be a better situation, which I equated everything with money. If I have enough money, somehow I, I, I created a heuristic of more money equals freedom. At some point, I will be okay. And uh, that worked up until it didn't. And maybe people are running into that situation now. And maybe you want to speak to what we could do with this slowdown. Uh, how do we sit with this? How do we sit with this total discomfort and not completely distract ourselves? So when, when I, and, and I, I spend a lot of time ex trying to explain uh, the times are urgent, let us slow down. It's, it's more than a mean to me, right? It's, uh, it's prophetic. And by prophetic, I don't mean a prediction of the future. I mean, it's a curdling of the present. It's, uh, it's, it's ontological expansion. It's a way of, ex of uh, inviting one into a vaster menu of um, options, behavioral options, than would have been possible if you were just speeding along. I, I would say this, that most, when people, when I invite a slowing down, most people think about um, some yoga accompanying process, you know, some way of going deep into yourself or um, reducing the speed of what you're doing or sp spending time with family. You know, all those things are well and good, right? Um, they're contextual, do what works for you. But um, I'm not specifically saying reduce your speed, um, reduce the speed of what you're, you're already doing. Um, 
the highway the highway is the is the character that I would like you to focus on when I invite people to to slow down not your speed not your your efforts to reduce your speed to become righteous to be more woke you know to be more aware of suffering out there um all of that is by the way, the real character I like you to focus on is on the highway. Because what does the highway want you to do? It wants you to press down that throttle, to step on the gas, to speed up, to slow down, whatever you want to do. It wants you to ride on it. It wants to take your feelings and use it so that it can feel more alive. Um, the effort to slow down is actually to, in some senses, defeat the highway. Not to, not to make the highway a new enemy, but to transgress it, to disturb its exclusivism and to do stuff that people don't do on the highway most of the time. <laughs> to, to, to do weird things. Um, when I was little growing up, there, there, was, um, um, there was this urban legend, this myth, this story um, that is still quite popular, I think. I haven't been home to Nigeria in, in some time. But the, the story was, if you bend down in the marketplace and look between your legs, you will find spirits. You will see spirits. Um, you will see people, I don't know if you've read Ben Okri's The Famished Road. Um, no, I hadn't even heard of it. <laughs> okay, you should get it. Is it, uh, is it a fiction, fiction book? I think he would take objection. <laughs> He's also a Nigerian, and I don't think he would want his book to be named fiction or nonfiction. It's crazy, and that's all there is to it. It's a, um, but but uh, you could check that out. The famous show, Ben Okri. He, he's a brother, um, and and I would I, I grew up in that milieu, you know, of the story that if you look bet- between your legs. Um, and the space, you know, behind you, you would find spirits. You would find people walking with two heads. You would find people floating. You would find people with three eyes. You would find all that kind of weird stuff. Uh, I remember trying to do it one day, and my uncle slapped the, the my head out of my shoulders. <laughs> he was like, "Don't you dare do it!" It was also in uh, that myth was also in keeping with a related myth that if you take the um, we call it the dog eye poo, you know, the, the dirt uh-huh. from the dog's eyes and put it in your eyes, you will see spirits. The reason why dogs bark at night is because they're seeing spirits. They're seeing things that humans don't see. They have senses of perception that we don't have. If you take a little bit of that jelly um, and that gel and put it in your eyes, you will find, you will see the things that they do. I never did it. No one did it. No one that I know ever tried that experiment because it was really... Um, we felt it was true. I still feel it's true in some ways. Um, but the sense here is that the crossroads always innovates the highway. Modernity has taught us to see things as categ- uh, categorically separate, like Charles would say. Um, so the highway versus the non-highway. Um, when you come from a world that thinks in terms of crossroads, then everything interconnects each other. Everything is diffracted. Spirits walk by, but we don't know. Our habits of perception teach us just to speed up. Um, the, the invitation to slow down is to notice crossroads. Is, is to notice those things that that psychiatrist told you about. The trauma, 
the things that are now coming up as a result of our changing circumstances. So it's not so much a, a thing like another thing you should do to put in the kitty. You know, I'm not even inviting you, Zach, to slow down. I'm inviting, I'm inviting every, the crossroads to meet each other. It's almost like a conjuring, a blessing for the crossroads, for the crossroads to meet each other, for the monsters, for the monstrosity that you and I are to finally come to touch that monstrosity and maybe to share that, our monstrosities with others and in so doing, open up other spaces of power. That is the invitation to slow down. I don't mean it as, oh, this is yet another thing I need to do added to my list of um, other wise things to do in order to arrive at some place of uh, altered consciousness or, or wokeness. No, it's, it's an invitation to the more than human. It's a blessing. It's a pronouncement. It's a prof- it's a prophecy, if you will. Yeah, no, I think it's. I think it's. I didn't. Ex- I honestly don't quite expect you to directly answer the question. You le- You. It's. You. You come back with. Uh, with extra. I have more questions. It's like I. I ask a question and I get and I get and I get more questions, um, and I get comments. You know, and, and then I get lost in the difference between a question and a comment and. If I say a comment with inflection at the end, does that make it a question? If I say a question with no inflection, does that, does that make it a comment? And then, and then, and I could picture people hearing that, you know, maybe you're just doing wordplay or taking words, mixing them together, but then deep down they know that there's something being said here. There's something being pointed to. Zach, but even wordplay is material. It has material effects. It's not just ideational. It's not just abstract. Even the things we call abstract have material effects. Like I could speak in highly abstract terms here, but that even has material effects that I may not know about. So even wordplay is meaningful. I mean, yeah, we look at we look at we look at hypnosis even in the most uh, the most studied Western science, right? Of, of hypnosis. Uh, having real effect or the stories that we believe having real effect dreams, you know, and dreams seem to come find us in the night. And even if we're lucid in a dream, the, the, the dream reality seems to, to be its own, its own world, its own universe and, uh, and invisible to most people. And, and, and I know a lot of cultures, or at least I'm told, I don't know this. Uh, I'm told that a lot of cultures valued the dream world and the ancestral world over this world. As a matter of fact, everything is kind of turned around and upside down where uh, this mundane world that everybody, that not everybody, but most I would probably say, uh, or in the global north, which we never hear referred to global north, it's just referred to (laughs) the the place and then everything else is the global south. they they would take this reality less seriously and and they think that they have even in india less fear at least they used to i think maybe they're becoming more westernized or falling under the spell of of the west or the north or the the place uh the enlightenment they're falling under the spell of the enlightenment maybe that's the best term because that that's been co-opted that term enlightenment uh that we're essentially it's a story uh that we're an accident happening on a on a rock from mutation, from a primordial ooze of some kind, fighting against entropy to sustain life as, as long as possible uh, and seek as much pleasure and comfort in that experience as we can. 
or as uh, as uh, uh, what's his name, the Jordan Peterson would say, be the uh, the strongest lobster on the hierarchy or something. Yeah, which isn't exactly a, an an accurate interpretation of Darwin's survival of the fittest. It wasn't survival of the strongest, and it wasn't an imperative. It was more like those who are fit fitted to the uh, circumstance are more likely to uh, uh, proliferate their kind. But but that's another topic entirely. Um, yeah, um, um, something occurred to me, and I think it's in keeping with where you're going as well. You know, th- there is this author, Charles Baudelaire. I forget what time, I think in the 19th century. Um, yeah, I, probably. Um, he wrote novels and short stories, and he wrote a well-regarded essay, a short essay about the counterfeit coin. Um, and it was just like a thought experiment, an extended thought experiment of what would happen if I introduce a fake coin or currency into an economy. Um, and it's, it's like this talk between friends or companions um, that if I were to introduce, imagine this fake currency, a number of things could happen. Um, one, the person who receives that coin could be arrested and taken to jail, or the person could actually transact with that coin and actually become rich. So many possibilities here. But just the introduction of that coin liquefies and opens up that economy of transactions to a different kind of relationship that wasn't possible prior to the introduction of the coin. Um, When I speak about fugitivity and openings and other places of power and uh, what we can do and questions about agency. I'm also calling into question, you know, the idea, the ideas we've taken for granted. I'm asking us to notice those things that are now showing up, you know, trauma, feelings of depression, um, notions of shame, things that the coin, so to speak, has now introduced into our economy of relationships. And, and to notice that those things that were maybe invisible at one point that are now crystallizing and now intelligible and now visible are products, data that we can work with in order to revisit and shapeshift ourselves. Um, We won't do that unilaterally, but if we find some ritual, some rite of passage, some way of communing and sharing our gifts, this insurgency of of bodies that are not of emotions of affect, um, maybe, maybe just maybe we can become utterly different than what we are. I don't think the, I don't think the issue is finding a way out, finding a vaccine, um, you know, finding a new resolution, returning to the normal. Though, you know, the ways that the media is presenting it, I feel this is an event that might allow us to ask questions that were not possible before, to feel things that were probably not possible before, and to share that with each other. And maybe in the asking of questions, we will finally know what to want, you know? (laughs) Because like I said earlier, even our visions of tomorrow are, are insidious reproductions of the present. You know, it ways that the status quo is seeking to 
reinstate itself, to reprivilege and recenter its own imperatives, just like the green economy and the whole, well, I don't want to say the whole as if it's a monolithic thing, but you know how people in America, for instance, would speak about the green economy and separate their trash into what do you guys do? Plastic and stuff and stuff and you not on not on Hawaii anymore. Not in Hawaii. China's right. not taking not taking the plastic, so that goes <laughs> I in like the garbage. How you bring, I like how I you bring it, it into China. Yes, it yeah. gets on a ship and it goes to China and China does stuff with it. It goes to Ghana, it goes to Sierra Leone, it goes to Nigeria, and it's dumped. The green economy has things, you know, it has skeletons in its closet uh, that conscientious and righteous folk in the West are not allowed to notice and see. Um, but when these things come out, we should be hospitable to them. That's the invitation here. That's a possibility. That's a fugitive, uh, that's fugitive receptivity to the stranger. What if we were hospitable to feelings of depression, whatever that means? Um, treat them as monsters that we are receptive to, um, that we share, that we do not pathologize like healers and herbalists in Nigeria invite people who have audio or visual hallucinations to treat those events as spiritual events, as, as the poetry and the, and the calls of your parents or your parents' parents or some kind of ancestry ancestor that is trying to get to you. Um, what other stories can we tell, even if they're speculative, what are the stories? What are the creativities are at work in this time? What are the things can we weave with our shadows? And what are the things can we invent, invent with, our, you know, with our weaknesses and limitations? Um, so at the risk of framing this as some kind of um, human-centered anthropogenic event, um, I would say that this is more a modest calling to find the others, to find kinship with the odd others that are always around us, including viruses. A lot of images came up when you went through this. <clears throat> the idea of, <clears throat> of alchemy, of inviting in, have, picturing the quarantine room as a temenos, uh, the container, and inviting the monsters in instead of trying to, uh, I, I live in Hawaii and there's some hole somewhere, or maybe a few where mice and rats seem to get in and, and feed in my house. Uh, they don't seem to mind what I think about it. Uh, but inviting these, uh, these monsters in instead of trying to keep them out. In the case of the mice, I might secure my house and uh, keep my food safe and they carry some viruses themselves, the rat lungworm. Uh, but, uh, that's notorious here, but the idea of inviting the monsters in and, uh, and using this as some type of initiate initiatory process. And I, I think that a lot of people are afraid of this because in the process of inviting the monsters, the spirits of the, of their ancestors in, uh, they fear that they may go crazy or may not make it through this type of initiation. Uh, the, 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 the structures, the, in the West or in most places in general are not there to hold somebody going through this initiatory process. And I think, uh, there's shame associated with being a burden. There's old people that are not, that don't even have COVID that are dying from other things because they're too ashamed to ask for help, uh, that they need in order to, to live <clears throat> because you know, the, 
their neighbors that are drawing, you know, drawing the curtains or judging them. And I think that the, there's a big element of, <clears throat> of shame, uh, that maybe blocks the, inv- the, the welcoming of the monsters. So these monsters can be, you know, guides in a way. And I feel that the coronavirus has been a very gentle way, really, <clears throat> a lot more gentle than a, a gigantic climate shift, like a new ice age or, or gigantic floods. <clears throat> it's been more gentle than what could have been. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, in, we were already speaking 2019, speaking about um, 2030 and 2015. Of course, our sights are temporarily taking off that um, that timeline and are now calibrated to the new COVID-19 timeline. But um, um, at the risk of trivializing the tragic loss that attends this phenomenon, um, compared to the accounts that we have been inundated by in scientific journals and in reports, um, yes, this is milder. I would agree with that. Um, and and it, it it affords us, you know, maybe what I really want to say at this point is, you know, th- there is this lingering sense, and maybe it's present here as well, that there, um, people might think, yeah, I don't want to do this, I don't want to let in monsters and stuff, um, as if that's a choice that we would always have to make. You know, it's, it goes back to the the myth of the liberal subject. And especially within the American milieu where the subject is presented with alternatives. So you might think of this event as, oh, I could either drink or entertain myself or sit with a trouble. Like it's a variety of conflicts. Like I could choose which one I want. I, I, I feel we're coming to a time when we would have no choice but to do these things that um, because choice is itself is is a gift. It, it's the co-creation. It's the applause of the manifold. It's not just something that comes from some um, blob-like soul, you know, that is a ghost in a machine that is in the human person that we can exercise freely. I think that choice, what we rudely call choice, is the is the contribution of bacteria, microbes, of fungi, of architecture of furniture of things around us so that it is never still choice is you know interrelationship it's constantly changing itself um so i think we might come to a place um where our only way to think about what you know survival or thriving would be to actually meet these beings, would actually be to solicit the help of things that we don't even know how to meet at the moment. I mean, the slaves that went across the Atlantic, um, those that were enslaved in, on the ships and taken to a world forcefully that wasn't theirs, they forgot the names of their gods. They had to adopt new, you know, underground fugitive ways to keep their connections with their homeland alive. They had to do it. It was the only way to be sane, to be alive in this new world that had been thrust upon them. In a sense, as the world becomes stranger, as the world withdraws its endorsements for the the project that is called man, 
the white propertied male, you know, the, the anthropos, as the world withdraws its endorsement and as the world becomes a little bit stranger, um, monsters will abound everywhere. The city would lose its definition um, as a thing apart from the wilds, and we would have no other option but to meet these beings face to face and sit with them. And then new vocations would emerge, and then we will learn to speak a new language. Um, I think in many senses, it's already happening under the guises of healing, of um, um, psychological events, of psychological breakdowns. We are meeting these beings. We're meeting the modern human, the post-human. And in doing so, I guess um, we're already shape-shifting in ways that are uh, too fine for our language to capture. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean we don't talk about it. I, I think a lot of times people will have an experience and a mystical experience or one of these experiences with the monsters or with the, with the otherness, as Krishnamurti put it, that invades our awareness. <clears throat> and because we can't put it immediately into words, we say it doesn't exist. Uh, I read a book recently about the imaginal, uh, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head right now. It's by Gary Lachlan. He said that, uh, and he talked about, gosh, I can't remember his name either. I don't know if you know any of these, uh, that people, it, it wasn't that unique people were poets. The way that people used to speak was in poetry. It was, there was a world of the imaginal that was, a living fiction, but wasn't a fiction separate from, <clears throat> from the, uh, I guess, lack of a better word, the literal, um, <clears throat> they were enveloped in one another and they were co-creating one another. And it's almost as though the, the imaginal has fallen into the unconscious and just like a, a dreamer forgetting his dreams or her dreams when they wake up in the morning, uh, we've forgotten that this entire other world exists. We forgot that there's ancestors. Where have our dead gone? Uh, where have the gods gone? You know, where, where, where are they? And, uh, and maybe this time that we're in this time of the invisible coronavirus, uh, coming in and, and showing that the invisible is very real and things that are small do matter and, uh, and matter and matter just as much as if not more. And if, if you ignore them long enough, they, they'll eventually matter more. They'll demand to be seen. And, uh, and I see that and I see that happening. And, and I, and I see in my talking about this and my almost impossibility of preparing for this dialogue with you bio is I don't have a pre-confabulated idea of what the hell we want to talk about. And, and I'm not, trying to just be some person try. I mean, maybe there's a part of this still there, but I don't want to just be some person trying to sound smart and trying to, you know, I'm going to figure out what the hell me and bio are going to talk about and deliver it to li these people called my listeners or whatever. But this, this is, I want to learn what is really going on here. And I don't expect that we'll figure out everything on, on this call or figure out everything before we die. And that's the beauty of life. But I think it is this, extremely uncomfortable position of not knowing of being in that place of just discomfort. And it's, it's an alien feeling. I'm, I'm becoming more comfortable in this place, but I, I am constantly getting served up with, 
you know, greater degrees of this discomfort. And I think a lot of people seek out maybe psychedelics for this reason is it brings you into this uncomfortable realm, but eventually you could become comfortable with the uncomfort of that. And the, the, the everyday, the, the banal, the everyday mundane becomes uncomfortable. And it's almost like you can't even find your way back. And I think that the journey, the, the, this journey that people are looking for sometimes is just right here. You know, it's right at that marketplace, right between your legs, as you put it. Um, it's, it's, I, we will need definition, right? I think, um, um, eventually, uh, even no matter how strong the meteor, I shouldn't say that, but even a strong meteor liquefying the soil and, and casting out waves of loamy space time in all directions, uh, from the point of impact, um, eventually that will crystallize, that will ossify, that will become solid, that will become like rock and almost immovable. So, yeah, we need definition. We will need definition. To, to the question about what is going on, I think that speaks to what's, <laughs> that speaks to what we've been talking about, that it's, it's impossible to know the scope and the reach and the intricate details, of course, of what in the world is happening. Um, even if we're in the midst of demise right now, civilization of demise, we probably wouldn't know. We probably might be quickening the demise up. You know, I think America is trying to open up again and saying, I think the COVID-19 phenomenon is bored, is boring right, right now. The shock value is fading. And so if you're like, yeah, people die anyway, let's just open up. We need to make money. The economy needs to get back into shape. Um, and then people are getting bored and they just want to get out again. You might be creating the conditions. And by you, I don't just mean America. I mean, many nation states across the planet are doing so as well. They might be creating the very conditions for the virus to thrive, to find other bodies to inflect and infect and to, and, and to change the shape of things. So I, I, the, I would say to the question, what is going on? I would say it's indeterminate. It's not even that we don't know, like it's uncertain, that we don't have all the data. It's indeterminate. That is, it's, it's everything over zero. It's, it, it's, it's not defined yet. It's incalculable. It's unframable. To speak about it would, to, would be to do violence to it. Um, and, and that is horrific. That is terrifying. But it's also... It's also um, a, a, a whiff of a hint of an opportunity to, to, to meet ourselves. Again, meeting ourselves is a very, very, it's luxurious work. It's a huge privilege to be able to see ourselves because seeing is political. And we get incarcerated in modes of seeing that repeat suffering and oppression for people around the world. So to see our scene is, is, is hard work and might take a virus to make that happen. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens um, as a result. But, but I'm, also, I'm also excited um, about this time. I'm already seeing, at least in my space in, in India, how mothers, especially mothers who have been unschooling their children, are now being the ones, you know, that have front page access, you know, on newspapers. Uh, journalists are reaching out to people like my wife and saying, how do you do it? How do you live with your children? 
You see, children are part of the invisible. We've made them invisible. We sent them to systems and we told those ourselves that those systems would take care of them and they would return them to us good citizens, good subjects of the state. And now the invisibles have come home and it's awkward. We don't know what to do with the products of our own bodies. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I heard just, I, I, I looked on Big Island now, it's a news site here in, on the Big Island, and it was the craziest thing I'd ever heard of. Um, coming from a, you know, my crazy upbringing and juvenile hall over and over again as a kid, halfway houses, having no group homes, you know, uh, there was always, they, they always wanted to put me and everybody else somewhere, you know, like, ah, put them over there to keep them away from whatever. So, uh, uh, there were letting people out of the jails and there was actually somebody that was arrested for uh, murder, uh, second degree murder of their son or stepson uh, here on the big island. And they and they didn't incarcerate him, which was like unheard of. They just said, oh, you're put on house arrest under supervision. Here's your ankle monitor. And to me, I was just like blown away uh so alien it was one of those moments where you like almost have to dream test you know like am i dreaming i, I you know <laughs> it's so outside of the norm and i'm not saying that you know if somebody's murdered you should just put them back at their home you know or someone murders somebody put them then again i could see someone going well how do you know he really murdered it you know like it was pretty they they, they he was a very strong suspect they would generally put somebody in jail for this and for much less and here and here we're in this situation and in, in the bay area in, in the bay area oakland san francisco area apparently like nobody's being arrested my friend is a criminal defense attorney and he's like nobody's being arrested so uh curious to see what happens there again that's just a totally total change because i'm assuming that all of what we consider crime has not stopped and a lot of crime i mean growing up where i grew up uh, it wasn't it didn't appear like choice to me for a lot of people uh whether they were committing crimes or not uh you were faced with uh you know i mean even getting into a fight if you are approached in a violent way and you don't fight at that exact moment you will have to fight 20 times to overcome the fact that you didn't, because you will be labeled as a bitch, so to speak, and people, you will have to fight 20 more times because you didn't fight the once. And I learned that lesson the hard way by not fighting once. And uh, yeah, and I think we're starting to see that we can't control everything. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see. Uh, I also think that a lot of people that are, you know, what would be called middle class, or if you want to call it middle income, uh, are starting to feel the same fears of people that are in absolute abject poverty uh, because there's so much uncertainty of are they going to even be able to pay the rent? The difference is, is that they everybody's in that situation now. So they're going, well, you know, if I can't pay the rent or the mortgage, well, nobody else can either. So they're still not alone. When you're in that real poverty level, you know, everybody throws their whole shame onto you. Like you should just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and not be drinking and, you know, not be angry and not be somehow just control your anger. Uh, and I, I don't know, I could never quite figure out how to not drink and how to control the anger and all of that, no matter how hard I tried, you know, and shame, shame didn't work either. So yeah, I'm curious to see what, what unfolds from all of this. And, uh, I don't know if there's anything uh, we've went for an hour and 21 minutes so far, if you wanted to try to, uh, leave us somewhere. Well, um, 
Well, I, I would say the crisis, the crisis, the crossroads, the crisis isn't that things are stopped because um, stoppages are sometimes strategies for systems to become more, more resilient, to become stronger. Laptops, uh, computer systems, fridges, everything has a switch off button, right? Robots, they have a, an off button. Uh, the crisis is when we put it on again. So the crisis is when we meet each other and we don't know what to do. Um, well, do we hug each other? Do I hug you now? Now that the invisible is now excited, you know, and is teeming with other forms of life, what do we do now? That's the crisis. That's the crossroads event. Not the, the stoppage, uh, you know, there, it just seems like a recalibration. It's a pause. Um, it, it's, it, that's not the crisis. The crisis is what do we do when we meet each other? How do we make sense moving on from here? Um, it's the nonsense. It's when we're invaded by nonsense, uh, the cacophony of other bodies that um, the crisis really shows up as its true self, a crossroads event. Um, so um, maybe what I'll say is, again, uh, it's, it's not to tell people what to do with that. I don't know what to do with this, uh, but, but, more, but more to offer a blessing. Uh, and the blessing is what I say over and over again, to slow down. And I'm hoping people are met by by um by events by emotions by feelings by imaginations by dreams that they probably didn't have before because our bodies are connected to this event it's it's uh it's not just epidemiological biological uh, uh political social it's spiritual it's it's very it's a very human event as well our bodies our minds are our entities are connected with this event so, so that we have become research data. Um, our internal states are now inflected and they are now publicly available, if you will, publicly accessible mm. by viruses of this kind, of this transversal kind. Um, so maybe my invitation is, you know, listen. Listen carefully. Listen. Do not be hasty to... Uh, to throw away um, things that have been termed shadows, things that have given you shame, um, things that have gotten in the way of your supposed progress in, in your former life of social mobility making. You know, do not be so hasty to throw those away. Meet them and find a way to entertain them. And, and if you will, you might be surprised by what they have to teach us. I'm not predicting that we will arrive at some kind of fundamental harmonious universe. If only we do, you know, what this virus is supposedly telling us to do. I'm, I'm not even saying that I, a, a harmonious universe is desirable. I'm saying that the imperative of living and dying is to shapeshift. And it is time for us to meet our molecular shapeshifting to touch it, perchance we might become something different that is wiser than where we are at the moment. And of course, we can have a three-hour conversation on how I propose we do that, but that is another podcast. That is another interview altogether. Thank you, Bio.
I've always, I'm always left with, I could pick this up and we could keep running with it again. Yeah. Well, I hope that we move back in. I don't know how effective hope is, but I hope that I get to see you again in person and that we could get around uh, in actually give each other a hug and take the risk of, of uh, a rite of passage into potential, uh, <laughs> potential infection and whatever that may bring uh, at some point. Maybe, maybe, maybe here in Hawaii, if, if people are able to fly, uh, fly in from India into Hawaii. Um, do you have any way that uh, my listeners or the listeners or anyone hearing this uh, can connect with you and anything you have coming up on the infamous Zoom? <laughs> Zoom. Zoom. Zoom is now a verb, right? Um, well, at, at the moment, I'm very excited to invite people to be part of... Uh, this, 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 the dream for this event came to me before the phenomenon. It came to me in the middle of last year, I think. And it, it's called uh, The Wilds Beyond Climate Justice, uh, a gathering at the end of hope. Uh, and it almost seems uh, predictive of where we are right now uh, and what you just said about hope. That if hopelessness was a field, what kinds of plants would we uh, plant there? What kinds of things would we do there? What parties would we have there? Um, and I would like to invite people to be part of that. It's a teeming underground community of fugitives that are gathering from May 31st to June 4th. And uh, that's from the Emergence Network, which I, I, I lead. Yeah. Um, and then to, uh, to check, to, you can check my website, basically, if you want to be in touch with the things that are unfolding. The first website is www.wildsbeyondclimatejustice.com. And mine is bioacomalafe.net. Um, yeah. And then we can meet in the dream space that has no .coms attached to it. Uh, I meet a lot of people there these days. <laughs> there's no quarantine there's no quarantine there <laughs> there are viruses of different kinds but no quarantine at the moment <laughs> yes yes that's beautiful yes. thank you bio thank you brother thank you for listening to this episode of zeitgeist with zatgeist and again please remember to rate and review this podcast in itunes podcasts are graded based on ratings and reviews the review could be one sentence or even shorter and have the same impact. So please take a moment and just give us a review. It will help spread these ideas with the world. Uh, we also are working on in-person projects both in Salt Lake City, Utah with Ecstatic Dance and on the Hamakua coast of the Big Island of Hawaii with the Rainbow Bridge Sanctuary. Uh, other parts of my work also includes deep financial healing in the form of student loan, debt, and tax strategies, as well as regenerative, uh, regenerative agriculture uh, that is spearheaded by Michael Kundik and his wife, Naomi. Stay tuned on Facebook at Zeitgeist with Zeitgeist for future offerings. We aim to keep all of our offerings available, or as many as we can, available in the gift or without paywalls. Thank you for your support.